0: Well, it's good to be back um, here at Woodhaven. Unfortunately, you guys are not here with us this morning. I was looking forward to all meeting together outside, uh, and then the rain came. But I have no doubt that you can tell over the live stream how deeply tanned I am from a week at the lake in northern Michigan. So uh, now my whole family is embarrassed as they are watching this. Um, We had a wonderful time up north. Uh, This is actually my first time I don't know what actually defines up north, but uh, this is my first time heading up north. Um, We were up near Traverse City and stayed with Bethany's family up there and had a wonderful time. Um, It is uh, beautiful up there and a constant reminder every day of the goodness of God and the just the amazing world that he has created for us to enjoy. Um, You know, obviously, we've heard people say before, if this is the world that is under the curse of sin, with all the sickness and pain and difficulty, then, man, I eagerly anticipate walking the new earth when we are free from that, and uh, creation is just popping even more with the glory and the goodness of God. And so, uh, you know, being in in nature for a week, we went to the sand dunes, uh, is just confirmation of the, of the glory of God and uh, man it makes me long for that time and uh, hopefully you have the same reaction uh, when you experience a beautiful sunset sunrise um, the beauty of a, a lake up here in Michigan it's all great so we had a good time glad to be back and uh, looking forward to opening God's Word with you this morning uh, you can open up to James chapter 2 we're gonna finish what we started a couple of weeks ago thank you to Pastor Marcel for filling in last week and opening the word, James chapter two, verses 14 to 26. Um, Some people have over the years called me a picky eater. Um, And I don't think that designation is wrong when they say that, but to defend myself, I will say that I am with age increasing the diversity of my palate in a good way, and enjoying more and more different types of food. But since I'm a tad bit picky, there have been times over the years where Bethany will try a new recipe, and inevitably she will ask me if I like it. Well, of course, when your wife asks you if you like something that she's made, then you reply, yes, always, in the affirmative. But then she knows to follow up that question with the real question that gets to the heart of the issue. Will you eat it if I make it again? That's the rub of the whole thing, right? I mean, I can say, I can verbalize all I want, my appreciation for this new recipe. I can talk about how good it is. I can say all the right things. But if I truly enjoy it and truly delight in the new recipe and what she's made, then I will want that to be made again. I will want it to be on the menu sometime in the coming week, and I will look forward to it. And when it's on the menu and placed in front of me, I will actually eat it. The eating either proves or disproves my words, right? It's easy to say that I like it. It doesn't take any effort. It doesn't take any true delight to verbalize my appreciation for it but what do I do and how do I actually respond when the possibility of eating this again becomes reality? And I think you can see the parallel with what we're talking about in James chapter two. We started studying this passage, a key passage in the New Testament and maybe the uh, most discussed passage in the book of James, but we started this two weeks ago, uh, James two, 14 to 26. And it's really all about the relationship between our faith in our actions, in our works. There are people who will verbalize their love for the Lord. They'll say it. Um, They'll speak about their faith in God and in his word. But when the opportunity comes to obey him and when the chance to act on what they say is placed before them, they won't do it. They don't follow through. And it proves that their words are just that. They're nice sounding words. They're not genuinely interested in acting because their faith at the core isn't real. It's not true faith. And that's the type of faith that is James's concern in this passage. It's a faith that speaks but doesn't act. And he doesn't want us to be deceived into this fake faith. This useless faith. Worthless, dead faith. And so he addresses this issue in James 2 14 to 26. So we started looking at this two weeks ago, and we're looking at four ways to have a faith that won't save. Four ways to have a faith that won't save. And we looked at the first three of these two weeks ago, and we'll spend the entire time this week looking at the last one. So the first one of these ways to have a faith that won't save is found in verses 14 to 17. And it's to pronounce nice things, to say nice things, without acting on them. Look at verse 14. What good is it, what use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith, that particular kind of faith, save him? And this is the problem. This is kind of a a summary of the whole passage. This is the issue that James is going after here. People who say they have faith, they say spiritual things, they say all the right things, but they're not living out their faith. And he gives us an illustration of this in verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, this is someone in the church, a brother or sister, and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? They can say all the right words. They can speak spiritual things. They can even say, I hope God meets your need. But ultimately, if you don't act on it, then it demonstrates that your faith is not genuine and is not real. And that's what he describes in verse 17. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So that's the first way to have a faith that won't say. You can say nice things without acting on them. The second one is in verse 18, and this is to partition off faith from works, to make a divide between these two. Verse 18. But someone, this opponent that he's dealing with throughout this section, will meet this opponent again today, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Right? So James imagines here that this opponent is pushing back against what he's saying about how he's bringing faith and works together and this opponent is saying essentially that god gives some people faith and some people works and both are legitimate ways to have salvation to approach god this is the heart of the way we talk about faith and works right they're not the same thing and you have to keep that in mind they're not flattened out together And the same thing, but they are inseparable. And that's what James continues to show in verse 18. Show me your faith. He challenges this opponent. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. We can't collapse faith and works into the same thing. We can't say that our only work is to believe in Christ. And that's it. We just believe him, and that is our work. It's not, they're not the same thing, but we also can't split faith away from works and think that we can somehow have a living faith that doesn't act. James here says he can show you his faith by his works. He demonstrates his faith by the works that he possesses. It's a living and an active faith. That brings us to our third way to have a faith that won't save, and this is found in verse 19. He says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And so here, what he's saying in verse 19 is that you profess the right theology like the demons do. So you have the right theology. You think the right things about God. This is always a temptation for us. We're tempted to think that we If we just affirm the right doctrinal truths, if we just say the right things, if we have the right creed in front of us, then we'll be fine. We agree with everyone around us about salvation, about God, and about who he is. We think that if we're earnest and sincere and know that Jesus died on the cross, then we're good to go. God will accept us. The problem is that sincerity and even doctrinal accuracy don't always indicate an active and living faith. Now, I talked about this two weeks ago. The problem here is not right theology. You shouldn't take away from what James is saying here, well, it doesn't matter if you have the right theology. You shouldn't be concerned about doctrinal accuracy or even about creeds or confessions of faith or what the church has believed over the last 2,000 years. That's not what James is attacking here. What he's actually saying is doctrine matters so much, and it's so important that when you affirm the right things, it needs to be absorbed into you and acted on. And that's what he's calling us for, or calling us to here. And that brings us to what we're going to discuss today. This is our last way to have a faith that won't save. This is in verses 20 to 26, and in many ways, this is the core of James's argument. It's the core of his argument because he's going back to scripture here. So, the fourth way to have a faith that won't save is to push aside the biblical witness. To push aside the biblical witness, verses 20 to 26. I mean, here's the thing the Bible's quite clear about this. Over and over again, in the Old Testament and in the New, genuine faith is active and it's living and it demonstrates itself in good works. And so James goes back to his opponent here, right? He's sort of sparring with this individual, and he uses him as a foil to make his points, and he goes back to him again in verse 20. Look there with me. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So James is basically saying, look, Do you need evidence for this? I've tried to prove my point to you, but do you want actual biblical evidence for what I've been saying about faith and works? I mean, that's why he says, do you want to be shown? You want it to be demonstrated to you? And he calls his opponent here a foolish person, which kind of sounds harsh, maybe because of what he's going to talk about in chapter three regarding the tongue But what he's saying here is this person is useless in many ways. They're hard-hearted. They won't receive the instruction that the Bible gives regarding faith and works. And so James is going to go back and this hard-hearted person, he's going to show them and demonstrate from the scriptures the reality of what he's been saying about faith and works. So he starts to do that in verse 21. Look there with me. Look at the question James poses. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Clearly, you know the character here, Abraham. If you read the Old Testament, you know that Abraham was a monumental figure in in the Old Testament storyline, history of the Jewish people. I mean, he's a monumental figure in the history of the entire world. He is significant. And so James is going to go back to Abraham to demonstrate or show the reality of his teaching because Abraham is so significant. He's such an authoritative person in the Old Testament. It's interesting here because this is not the only time Abraham is used in the New Testament to prove teaching on faith and works. The Apostle Paul goes back to Abraham as well in Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 4, and he uses Abraham as well for evidence of what he's teaching regarding faith and works. But What, what I want you to notice here in verse 21 is the particular event in the life of Abraham that James goes back to. I mean, look there again. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? And so that language, justified by works, we have trouble with that because the Protestant Reformation and biblical teaching, our doctrinal statement, tells us we are justified by faith, right? And so this is troubling language to us. But notice the event in Abraham's life that James is going back to. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. And so if you're reading the story of Abraham, we need to go back to the life of Abraham and think about the whole story of Abraham for a minute to understand what James is saying here. If you're reading the life of Abraham, it goes from Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 25. That's the whole life of Abraham. And... As you read the life of Abraham, it's not a complete biography like we would typically think of a biography of a person, where all the different details of this person's life, or or many of them, are discussed and, and all of that. The, the biography of Abraham in Genesis skips over large chunks of time. And the whole biography really has to do with two significant promises that God made to Abraham: land and a seed that was to come to him. And it demonstrates that God's going to follow through on those promises. And so Genesis 12 to Genesis 25, and this event that James is talking about comes in Genesis 22. So it's near the end of the life of Abraham. So in many ways, this is the culmination of Abraham's life. I mean, after this event, not a whole lot happens, right? I mean, he has Isaac, or he... Isaac receives his bride in in, uh, Genesis 24 and then Abraham dies in Genesis 25 and so um, there's not a whole lot to happen so this is the high point this is the culmination of the life of Abraham and so we need to remember what happens before this point to understand what James is saying about Abraham being justified by his works so go all the way back to Genesis 12 you can turn there if you want Or you can just listen, Genesis 12, we'll go to Genesis 15 in a minute, but in Genesis 12, right off the bat, you read that God calls Abraham and he promises him three things. He promises him land, to him and his descendants, he promises him descendants, and he promises Abraham that he will be a blessing to the world. Those are the three big pieces of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, of course, in Genesis 12, Abraham has no children. And so these are promises that he's going to have to trust in and see fulfilled in the future. Then a few chapters later, in Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham again, and I'm going to read you what God says to him in Genesis 15, verses 1 to 6. Again, you can turn there if you want, or you can just listen, or you can look at it on the screen. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. He brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And then this is the key verse in Genesis 15. Listen to the verse 6. And he, Abram, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. At that moment, he didn't see the realization of the promise, but he trusted God, and God reckoned or counted that as righteousness. And so in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, God makes a covenant with Abraham, but there's no child yet in Genesis 15. Years later, when Abram is 99 years old, in Genesis 17, God confirms his covenant that he's made with Abraham. Of course at this point Abraham has one son but he tells him he's going to have another son by Sarah and that will be the true son of promise and not Ishmael. And so Abraham was circumcised at 99 years old Genesis 17 and then one year later the son of promise comes. Isaac is born. Isaac is born in Genesis 21. Then in Genesis as you're reading the story Isaac is born in Genesis 21 and then immediately in the next chapter abruptly you get Genesis 22 and Genesis 22 tells this story that James is talking about it's the story of God asking Abraham to offer his son the son of promise the son he loves to God as a sacrifice So, I mean, imagine the situation. I'm sure if you're a a father or a mother too, a parent, you have thought about this situation all these years, all these promises, all the waiting. And finally, this son by Sarah is born, this beloved son. Abraham has had to trust these promises, even though it's crazy that an older couple like this would have a son. Finally, he's born and in the story, almost immediately, God asks him to sacrifice him. Listen to Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Abraham here obeys God without question. It's unbelievable in the story as you're reading it. The faith and the trust that he demonstrates in God. And he knows that God will provide exactly what he needs. In fact, the, the book of Hebrews talks about Abraham's faith here. Listen to Hebrews 11, verses 17 to 19. By faith, Abraham... When he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, listen to God's words to Abraham in Genesis 22, verses 12 to 18. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Side note, I cannot read this without mentioning this. Interestingly enough, do you know where the land of Moriah is? It's Jerusalem. What would later become Jerusalem? On a mountain outside of Jerusalem, Abraham was going to offer his son and God provided a ram. It's amazing. It Continues in, in Genesis 12 or 22. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Affirming, reiterating here the promises that God made to him in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 when he made a covenant with him in Genesis 17. So now, all of that story of Abraham helps us to make much more sense of what James says here in James chapter 2 and verse 17. 21. Abraham did not earn God's favor by his obedience to him, right? I mean, that's not what happens in the story. That's not how it unfolds. It wasn't that Abraham's good outweighed his bad. It wasn't that he had enough credit to his account and that he acted rightly and God was suddenly pleased with him. What happens in the story of Abraham and what James is drawing our attention to when he uses this language here is that his obedience to God in Genesis 22 vindicated God's declaration of his righteousness in Genesis 15. So in Genesis 15, God says he is righteous. He credits to him his righteousness, but Abraham's not actually righteous at that point. He's trusting God, he's believing in him, and God accounts his faith as righteousness. But he's not actually righteous at that point. And so verse James 2, 22 and 23 explain verse 21 to us, right? Now James goes into explanation mode after asking this question. Verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled, the scripture we've been talking about, that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. So here in verses 22 and 23, James gives us three ways. He describes the relationship between faith and works in three ways. I just read them. Let me go back through them with you. He says, first of all, that faith was active alongside his works. Verse 22. You see that faith was active along with his works. Faith, or let's say it this way, his works flowed from his faith and they were the natural result of it. He believes God in Genesis 15 and because that faith was real, it acted in Genesis 22. He trusted God and so he did what God said in Genesis 22. And that's true throughout his life. All the intervening years. He trusts God gives proof of his faith and the offering of Isaac was the culmination of that and that's why he said he tested that God tested Abraham this was the high point this was the ultimate test of his faith the second thing that James says in verse 22 is his faith was completed by his works faith without works you could say is incomplete It's not real, it's not genuine. Faith finds its intended goal or its culmination in its working out in actions. Faith lends itself, leads toward actions. I love the way Paul puts this in Galatians 5 and verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Right, And this is the point that Paul's making in Romans. You're not saved because you're circumcised and you work for that salvation. That's not how it happens. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Real faith in God works through And demonstrates itself through love. It finds its completion, its fulfillment, its culmination in actions. And that's what you see in the life of Abraham. It was demonstrated. Love is the goal and the consummation of faith and love. It's active. Finally, the the last thing he says here in verse 23 is that the scripture was fulfilled. You only see this if you read the whole life of Abraham. He believes God in Genesis 15, and that belief was fulfilled in Genesis 22. It was publicly demonstrated and publicly known that now Abraham had actually grown in righteousness. He wasn't perfect. It wasn't that he never sinned again. But God had actually worked in him Genuine righteousness by this point. He declared him righteous in Genesis 15, and that found its full significance in Genesis 22. He trusts God's words. God declares him righteous. Now, over the years in between, his faith had been active in his life, and that initial faith grew into a full and a complete faith that demonstrates itself. It took root in him on the inside. It changed his character. And that's why when you get to Genesis 22, it's almost shocking how obedient and compliant Abraham is in that story. It's because he is a different man at that point in his life. He has learned what true faith is and how true faith obeys God without question. And knows that God will be faithful to his promises. And so true faith is willing to act no matter what is required of true faith. So when the ultimate test came in Genesis 22, Abraham's a different person. He's completely changed. He has genuine holiness, genuine righteousness. And the, the declaration of his righteousness in Genesis 15 was vindicated by Genesis 22. And so, with all of that, I think we can now see, in the life of Abraham, we can now make sense of Paul and James. Let me remind you of these two verses. James 2, verse 24, you can read this right here. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then Paul in Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. I think Paul and James are in absolute agreement here. But they're coming at the question of faith and works from different perspectives or different angles two different starting points. So Paul in Romans is telling Gentiles in Rome that they don't have to be circumcised or keep the Old Testament law or do anything to earn favor with God. They can't earn favor with God because they were born in their sin. And so Paul, of course, is correct in Romans 3.28 when he says this, that we're justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's right. But James is coming at this from a different angle here, and that's why these two statements fit together. James is dealing with Jews who believe they're fine because they have the right theological beliefs. They affirm that God is one. And this is why he goes back to the life of Abraham. And he points out in the life of Abraham that faith works itself out. And this is why he says that we're justified by works and not by faith alone. When he says this in verse 24, faith alone, he's talking about the type of faith that he began this section with in verse 14. The faith that only says. The faith that is void of any works, a bare faith, an intellectual faith. It's the same sort of faith that he's been going through or talking about in this entire passage. So I think Paul and James are in agreement here. And James presses his point home with one more illustration in verse 25. Look there with me. And in the same way, right, so he's making the same point here, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Same idea. Rahab proved the reality of her faith. Her faith was vindicated when she acted on that faith. Listen to the story from Joshua chapter 2. I'll read you part of it. Before the men lay down, these are the Israelite spies... Into Jericho, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And here's how Hebrews 11 describes this passage in Joshua chapter 2. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. It's by faith, and you can hear her declaration of faith here, right? She recounts what God had done. She verbally affirms it and when she verbally affirms it it leads her to act she genuinely believed that God was the creator God the almighty God and he would crush them and so because she genuinely believed that she acted on it and she hid the spies these were actions of faith they're not the same thing but they go together now what's interesting here is In James chapter 2, you have this long explanation of Abraham and we understand why he includes Abraham here, you know, his father of the the Jewish people, patriarch, significant character in the Old Testament, and then all of a sudden James pivots and includes a little-known Gentile prostitute from Jericho. Why does he do this here? Why does he sort of insert this second example? in the story or in his explanation here. I think he does it because we're not all Abraham. None of us are Abraham. None of us are have the faith of Abraham and accomplish what Abraham accomplished in his life by the promises of God. Rahab was a prostitute. She became a worshiper of God in exactly the same way Abraham did. And that's the beauty of this. No matter what her life was before, no matter how wicked and how many wrong things she had done, Rahab could never have her good works outweigh her bad. It wasn't possible. She didn't earn favor with God by hiding these spies. That's just not the case in her life. But what happened in her life? She heard the truth. It came to her. Israel's God is the creator God and she heard it and she believed the truth. She knew it was true and her faith in what she heard led her to act on it. And that's exact same thing that happened to Abraham and that's the exact same thing that should be happening in our lives as well. No matter what you've done in the past, no matter where you've been, no matter what lifestyle you have had, genuine faith brings salvation, and then works itself out in actions. So now James summarizes the whole thing in verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. It's the same point he's been making the whole time. So let me try to summarize this. Bring it all together. I was helped immensely in this by one author, Uh, Daniel Doriani uh, has a commentary on James and he had a really helpful way of distinguishing between the different views of faith and works and the relationship between them. And I want to show that uh, description to you and explain it to you because I think this will help you to grasp some of the differences and what what James is saying here and what Paul is saying too. So I'm going to have this go up on the screen here for you to see. But there are four different Views of the relationship between faith and works. The first way you can see here is that some people think, and I would say this is probably the majority of people in the world, regardless of their religion. If you do enough good works, that results in salvation. So there's works, and there's an arrow, and then there's salvation. Good works equal salvation. The second way here is I think is also common, and I would say this would be the traditional Roman Catholic view of how you come to salvation. A lot of times Protestants will mischaracterize the Roman Catholic view and say it's by works. They'll think it's the first view, and that's not actually right. They do believe it's by faith, but it's faith in addition to works. You actually have to put on righteousness in order to be justified sometime later down the road. And so you can see here that it's faith, belief, plus works, equals, leads to salvation. The third view here, I think, is many, many Protestant Christians. And this would just be faith, and then an arrow, and then salvation. This view would say simple faith brings salvation, and works may or may not follow. They're optional. If you just will believe for even a minute of your life, genuinely assent to the gospel, then you are saved, they would say. Salvation results. This is the faith, I think, that James is attacking here. It's a bare faith. It's an intellectual faith. You may have heard this taught, that you are saved by faith, and then at some point later in your Christian life, you make a second decision to make Jesus Lord of your life, You've received him as Savior, then later on you have to receive him as Lord, and that's the point where you start to grow. People like this would teach. I heard this teaching different times growing up. This, I think, is the exact type of teaching that James is attacking here, that sort of splits apart faith and works and makes works optional in the Christian life. The fourth view, I think, is the one that both James and Paul teaching here and it's that faith does lead to salvation faith alone brings salvation but then after the salvation it says plus works there we are gloriously saved as Abraham was as Rahab was by faith alone Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness but the faith that saves us is never alone always vindicates itself and shows itself by active change of life and active works. It is a working faith, an active faith. By definition, for it to be true, it will show itself in deeds of love and mercy and a change in character, a change in affections. And so here's what what I would end this two-part series on faith and works from James 2 with. I would say we need to, as we always do, adjust our lives to fit the biblical teaching. What we tend to do is go to the scriptures and try to adjust what the scriptures teach in order to fit how we're already living or our lives. Sometimes we do that without even realizing it. But I would say let this passage sit hard on you. Reckon with what James is teaching here. Real faith is active. It's powerful. It's living. When God gives you new life, that new life demonstrates itself by the reality of good works. And so I would say in in closing on this, if you have any questions at all about this, if you want to talk about the relationship between faith and works, how this fits together, how this works itself out, I would love the chance to sit down and talk with you on that. You can email whatever and work through this together because this is important for our lives. It's important to rightly understand our faith and to rightly understand how we should be changing over the course of months and years as the gospel gets into us and works on us and produces genuine faith and actions just like it did in Abraham's life. So I hope this is helpful to you. I hope it's clarifying for you. If you have any questions at all, let's talk about it, all right? Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for the scriptures. They are clear. We're not left to wander. You have given us everything we need for life and godliness. Yes, there are mysteries. There are things we don't know. There are areas that... In our knowledge base that are unclear, but Lord, you have given us all we need for life and godliness, and we can absolutely trust you with our lives, just as Abraham did. So strengthen us even today. Strengthen us with the same faith that Abraham had to, to hear your promises and to, to believe them, to just trust you. And then to act on that, Lord. When you call us to obedience by your word, we can week out, day in and day out, that we'll just trust you and and obey. We're so thankful for our salvation. We're thankful for the grace that we have received completely undeserved. We are like Rahab the prostitute. We are unworthy of grace. We're like Abraham, a pagan called out of his worldly lifestyle to receive these glorious promises. We're not worthy, and yet you are filled with goodness and grace. We're so thankful for that. Thank you for all you've done. Thank you for what you are doing in our midst. We love you. In Christ's name, we pray.